0: Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, October 15th, 2012. I'm Pat Coleman.
1: And I'm Keith McMillan.
0: And we uh, have, have been through now the seventh week of the Division three football season. And if you don't know the Around the Nation podcast, just tuning in for the first time. Uh, first of all, glad you joined us. Uh, I think it's, I think this might be year seven, but at any rate, I'm Pat Coleman and, and uh, Keith McMillan and I. Uh, rundown the week that was in Division Three football and the week that will be. And the week that was, Keith, uh, certainly was a fantastic one. And, you know, surprisingly, perhaps, perhaps not surprisingly in some of the cases, but, uh, you know, we had the four games uh, which matched up two top 25 teams, and all of them were blowouts. And then we had uh, three upsets of top 25 teams on top of it. But then again, you know, a couple of those were uh, were upsets that were foretold as well.
1: Yeah, this is probably uh, our best week in, in a long time as, as far as our triple take predictions. But of course, you know it, it's not about us; it's about the things that happen on the field. And at this point in the season, Pat, um, the, the weeks tend to be great weeks you know, almost every week. You know, there, there's very rarely a, uh, a a total dud of a week because you're you're in the midst of conference play now, and the teams that that haven't faced off early in the season. You know, there were there were certainly quite a few. You know non-conference clashes that were fun to watch in weeks, you know one, two, three, and four back in September. But now that we're here in the middle of October, we have these great, uh, you know, conference clashes that we've been looking forward to for weeks now. And a bunch of them happen in in, in week six, and a bunch of them are going to happen next week. And I'm sorry, a bunch of them happened last Saturday in week seven, and a bunch are going to happen uh, this coming Saturday in week eight.
0: You know, I think one of the reasons why uh, some of these upsets were were easy to foresee, I guess, or, you know, something that we could look at is because in a lot of these cases, there were things that we could see in the recent performances of these teams that kind of, even though the ranking said one thing, you know, the recent trend was perhaps going in the opposite direction. Um, one of the ones I think of specifically uh, is uh, Alfred, Alfred over St. John Fisher, uh, a game in which, you know, Alfred uh, won 26 to 13. Uh, you know, the guy who's been the... The big horse on the ground for them over the last four or five weeks now is Chuck Beckwith, a guy who, has, you know, started the started last season pretty deep on the depth chart, got a little bit of playing time, and then, uh, you know, this year has kind of moved into the forefront the last few weeks with uh, Austin Dwyer being, I guess, unavailable perhaps to take a a, a full-loaded running back. But, and then on the opposite side, we've got St. John Fisher, a team that, you know, uh, lost its starting quarterback. Backup uh, did pretty well until making a couple of uh, errors down the stretch, and then Ryan Kramer comes back in a quarterback for them this week and uh, struggles throwing three interceptions.
1: Yeah, five turnovers overall for the Cardinals, and uh, it was probably something that that we foresaw in the sense that uh, we talked a couple weeks ago, I believe on the podcast about Saint John Fisher uh, you know having squeaked by a couple of their early games, and uh, you know you can't continue to win playing that kind of football. Well, we we've seen it maybe two times in the in the past 10 years. We call them the the cardiac uh, there was a central season and there was the Del season where they kept winning um, you know by the skin of their teeth, but really that's not it's not a recipe for winning football and when teams are exposing um Things that you don't do so well, you know, eventually it comes back to bite you. And and on uh, on Saturday, you know, for St. John Fisher, it was the the five turnovers total. Also, uh, Fisher only able to rush for forty five yards, and, uh, and th- that's that's real tough. And uh, again, the, you mentioned the emergence too of Chuck Beckwith, one hundred forty eight yards rushing on on Saturday and two touchdowns, and and that's a probably maybe more of an indication uh, that Alfred is not the same team that it was, you know, back in Week One. And it lost to RPI, and uh, it, Alfred has been a team. I think that's that that's you know gone from being on the fringe of maybe the, the top fifty, maybe being the third team in, in the Empire Eight, to now being a team that has a chance, um, you know, to, to be a playoff team this season.
0: Yeah, they, uh, you know, mentioned you mentioned the uh, their op- season opening loss to RPI uh, after a, a week one bye in the second week of the season. Then they beat St. Lawrence. Uh, beat Buffalo State. That was when they uh kind of got back onto the radar. Uh, they they handed Ithaca their first loss, but I think we probably suspected that Ithaca's four and zero start was not necessarily the uh, the strongest indicator. Uh, and then so obviously they uh beat Saint John Fisher. Uh, this week they go to Salisbury next week. Uh, then they go to Utica, host Frostburg, and travel to Hartwick to end out the season. They have um, if they get through this week, they'll have been through the you know, the strongest part of this Empire 8 schedule, although, of course, obviously going to Salisbury is a uh, tall order.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, Salisbury tested itself early in the season, you know, by playing Wesley, and, and they've now every week, it seems like, have a tough game in the Empire 8, and they've uh, been able to to get through it. Salisbury, though, unlike, um, say, Mary Harden-Baylor, we've been really impressed with with the crew this year because they're such a run-based team, but they've been able to throw the ball effectively. Salisbury... I think it's sort of week to week in, in the passing department. And uh, they haven't every week played, you know, been able to throw the ball well to complement that triple option. Uh, but they have been pretty solid on defense, and I think that'll keep them in, in a lot of games. This Empire 8, you know, we thought maybe they would run away with it, the the Seagulls, and now I think it's going to be pretty, uh pretty exciting finish.
0: You know, I, I would think in a lot of cases, um, teams like that, you know, wouldn't throw if they don't have to you know if if the, is the passing game inconsistent because it's actually not performing well or is it inconsistent because you know there are weeks where they can just run the ball of people and they don't have to worry about throwing
1: you know I, that's actually a good point pat and, and when i look at the, the the box scores and the stats you know I'm, I'm looking usually at passing efficiency you're not looking for those those major numbers but if they're throwing the ball eight times are they two for eight are they four freight? Are they six freight? Are they getting big chunks of yardage, you know, on on key third downs, or are they catching teams off guard for for big plays, uh, or, or are they just throwing, you know, as we say, just to keep teams honest, just to run a pass play every once in a while, which I don't think is is you know quite as effective. But you do you do make a very good point. There's some teams in Division Three, and and probably more than just Mary Harden, Baylor and, and Salisbury on the list. You know, there may be ten or twenty teams that run the ball so effectively that there are some weeks where they don't even need to to bother with throwing it, or, or there are teams like uh, like Washington, Leaf, for example, that runs the ball so well that um, no, it's not that they don't want to throw the ball, but when when that run game is working, you just stick with it and and, uh, and go ahead and take your victory.
0: Salisbury with that win against uh, Hartwick, thirty-seven to seven. They have uh, Alfred, Ithaca, Utica, and Frostburg State to end the season. Yeah, you know, we're getting close to the time of year Keith, where we can begin to talk about uh, with we could talk about it obviously from week one if we wanted to, but we can begin to talk with you know some actual data behind it. firstly about strength of schedule and secondly about where that might affect a team's uh, opportunity for a pool C bid. I don't think we're quite there. We probably need another week of uh, you know seeing how conference races play themselves out, but you know th- that very small handful, of at large bids it looks like it's probably going to be pretty competitive again this year.
1: Yeah, and 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 that's you know half the fun of of the D3 season is is following that race not because everybody's involved in in their uh race for the automatic qualifier for the bid in, in the you know the 20 some odd conferences that that have an automatic bid to go with them. And almost every team is in contention for one of those and if not there's that pool B bid that's set aside for for those you know uh, teams that don't have an automatic uh, bid to qualify for. And so the, that race, you know, this year, I think has been, you know, maybe as good as any pool, re, pool B B race. Uh, or maybe it's the best pool B pool of teams, you know, it, that we've seen in, in, in our time doing this, Pat, because you have Wesley, which is almost like, uh, you know, if they, if they lose less than one game, they're a in for a pool B bid. Um, but with the schedule that Wesley played, you know, you end up having all, all these teams with several wins under their belt. They're all going to face Wesley, and they're all going to face each other. So you have, you know, you have Wesley, you have, Birmingham Southern, Huntingdon is in the mix, um, and, and you know Carnegie Mellon is having a great season f- from the UAA. So you have to consider them, and it, it's starting to be uh, a group of teams where if they didn't, if they weren't beating all, all beating up on each other, you might see one of them fall into Pool C and take away an at-large bid um you're right too that this is maybe a little before we really dive in head first as far as the playoff talk goes but yeah once we get into it it it, you know it's uh i guess we're stat heads about about this stuff and uh sometimes we have to remind ourselves to to reel it back and explain to the people who who don't know how the playoff system works you know that, that it's 32 teams and uh there aren't very many at large bids to go around and so even though we spend a lot of time talking about the one loss and two loss teams that have a chance at the the at large bids they are really very you know very few of them and so there there's going to be some good teams pat in in division 3 that you know you finish maybe with 8 wins don't get in the playoffs and there's going to be some good teams pat when when each week's top 25 comes out at this point in the season uh you know you may be 7 and 0 or 6 and 1 but there's a, there's you know Fifty teams that that are, that are you know maybe thirty five or something like that that still are undefeated or only have one loss. So uh, what is what seems like a special season is being replicated several places around the country, and you just can't fit them all into the top twenty five, and you just can't fit them all into the thirty two team playoff field.
0: Yeah, so there are twenty four automatic bids this year. Uh, in the past, there have been twenty five, but the Southern Collegiate Athletic Conference broke up. Um, Two of the teams, two of the football programs, anyway, are still under that banner, and the other five are playing in a new conference called the Southern Athletic Association. Because that conference has just five football teams, and also because it's new, it doesn't qualify for an automatic bid yet. So they uh, lost that automatic bid. Um, So those are the those 24 conferences have automatic bids, and you can find that link on our site under uh, under contact. There's a section called Frequently Asked Questions. Go there. Um, If you're not in one of those 24 conferences, you are in that Pool B that we keep talking about. That's, uh, you know, the remaining handful of true independents, uh, the Southern Athletic Association, the University Athletic Association. Um, I don't think I'm missing anybody. Uh, And then everybody else, uh, and, and that's one bid set aside for them, one bid for the Pool B teams. And then the other seven are at large for any of the you know 200 schools that didn't get one of the previous 25 bids so that is what everybody's battling for nationally across the country they are not uh given out on a per region basis uh since this uh, system came in back in 1999 that uh, no longer is is the case or there's, there's no longer a guaranteed certain number of teams from each region to go to the playoffs so you're really competing out there if you're let's just say for example hypothetically your Bethel, uh, and you are you know hoping about your at-large uh, hopes after this past week, then you are looking at yourself against the second-place team in each of the other 23 conferences that have automatic gids, bids, you know, give or take. Basically, anybody that has one loss or two losses, at least, someone you should be looking at over the next couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, and and that sometimes can be a very large group at this point in the season, Pat, week seven. Week eight, there are a lot of teams who still have playoffs on, the, on their minds. And so we'll get you know, questions tweeted at us or emailed to us about, uh, are there two lost teams that still have a chance? And technically, the answer is yes, but there are so many teams that are still in it right now. And that's, you know, that's part of what makes the D3 season exciting. But it also means that, you know, bottom line, the team needs to keep winning. You know, it, it, it's, it's nice to be ranked right now. It's nice to be in the playoff mix right now, but we've seen it over the years, Pat, teams that are in great shape, you know, in week eight, lose two out of their last three or lose their last two games, and they're right out of the playoffs.
0: I mentioned Bethel because I want to talk about them next. I was at the Bethel-St. Thomas game on Saturday, and um, you're always just surprised at how uh, thoroughly St. Thomas handled Bethel, uh, especially defensively you know, in, the, uh, in, in the first half. Uh, Bethel took just 16 snaps on offense the entire half. They had the ball for seven and a half minutes. minutes. Uh, the Tommies were able to move the ball pretty methodically on the ground. They had their defense rested. In the third quarter, the third quarter was the one quarter where it was competitive. Uh, teams went uh, back and forth. Bethel actually moved the ball a little bit, but neither team put any points on the board. And then in the fourth quarter, uh, St. Thomas put together one long drive that took, to, took off the first six and a half minutes of the, th- of the fourth quarter, uh, a little bit out of the third. And then also uh, an interception return to make it 37, nothing. And they had another pick late in the game um, to help seal it up. The thing that impressed me most about St. Thomas Keith, uh, in addition to, you know, just how dominant they were defensively was the fact that on offense, they seemed to be almost a completely different team than the last time I'd seen them against uh, Wisconsin River Falls. Um, against River Falls, if, Listen to the podcast that week. You might remember I talked about how uh, St. Thomas just pretty much exclusively threw the ball, uh, even when they uh, even when we were, when they were leading in the second half. Uh, on Saturday, uh, you know a lot of the uh, a lot of the run game was was Matt O'Connell the quarterback. Uh, I, some of it is designed runs. Some of it is you know him pulling the ball down and trying to make something out of uh, you know out of a out of a, a pass situation that didn't work. But he ended up with. Uh, 20 carries for 89 yards, and the rest of the team, the rest of the running backs running straight up the middle, did not, uh, or, or you know, uh, between the hash marks, didn't really have a whole lot of effectiveness to them. Uh, and then on the other side, I don't I mean, I almost don't even know what to say about Bethel. They, they go from, you know, this uh, seemingly momentum spurring win in the last second against Concordia Moorhead, and they. Just came out. They went, you know, obviously they went three and out on every possession in the first half, and they never got any momentum. I was sitting behind the uh, the offensive coordinator for Bethel because St. Thomas's press box is kind of cramped, and he he didn't have anything to do the first half. He didn't have any plays to call.
1: And that's you know definitely not the the recipe to win. Um, You know, going three and out often. I think it's more frustrating than anything, and it's not just. It's frustrating for the offense. It's also frustrating for the defense, which feels like it has to be on the field the whole time, and they start to get tired and wear down. And it, it you know, it's sort of a, a bad recipe uh, for the entire team. You know, when you when you can't get anything going, I think it, it just you know your quarterback doesn't get in rhythm, your running game doesn't get in, in rhythm, and there's certain things where, um, you know, that repetition helps helps you build success over the course of a game. And so, you know, for Bethel, that was certainly it was a from afar. You know, not being at the game, Pat, like you were, it was a shocking result, and by the margin. You know, I, I, we talked a little bit on the podcast last week about this, and, and you know that the 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 Mayak is going to be. Uh, for the next five weeks here is going to be a crazy race because you had, you know, again every every team won all their non-conference games and then they had barely just started started playing each other. The the Bethel Concordia Moorhead game was really the bit, first big clash. You know, Bethel Augsburg had had a, had a um, great game earlier in the season and and Pat, you know how you mentioned in the very beginning of this podcast, you know, to we got to look past the records sometimes and see things. Um, that are that are happening you know we're getting cues from from the way these teams play the games and 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 Bethel had been giving us the cue for a couple of weeks now that they were just squeaking by and uh, you know that that's not the type of of um, you're not going to be able to play squeak by football to beat St.
0: Thomas no uh, and one thing about the Mayaka uh, they do have a couple of non-conference games left so uh, Gustavus Adolphus lost on Saturday to Valley City State and a couple of teams I believe have yet to play McAllister, but there's so there is one loss in there and there may not be any others o- over the course of the season depending on how um, how Hamlin and McAllister go. That might be an interesting game, but you know regardless, um, it does set up the conference in a good position in terms of strength of schedule to get a second team in the playoffs if uh, you know if Bethel manages to survive or if. Uh, Augsburg manages to knock off St. Thomas or Concordia Moorhead knocks off St. Thomas it's kind of interesting actually um, sometimes when St. Thomas plays Bethel over the last couple of years and it's been you know the the game that kind of decides the conference uh, St. Thomas has had kind of an easy go of it after this but in, in this case it's really not the case they have two one-loss teams left on their schedule
1: yeah I think the best way to put it in perspective Pat is to say this St. St. Olaf right now is 5-2 and two. Uh, three and two in the conference. They're in fifth place in the MIAC. They have five wins in week seven, and they're in fifth place because uh, St. Thomas is six and zero, uh, Augsburg, Bethel, and Concordia Moorhead each five and one, each with one loss in the MIAC. And and there's so much uh, overlaps, cross play between these teams, uh, you know, yet to be uh, yet to be played that. Um, you know, it, it may sort itself out, and the Mayak may end up being only a, a one-bid conference if the if the teams behind St. Thomas right now beat up on each other. But if one of of, of Augsburg, Bethel, and Concordia Moorhead emerges, you know, and, and maybe you can consider St. Olaf still in the mix. Um, you know, if, if one of those teams wins out from here, uh, it's going to be a pretty strong contender for a second playoff bid.
0: There's a lot more we could say about this game, uh, and I did talk uh, after the game with linebacker Harry Patera for St. Thomas. Uh, and I also talked with Glenn Caruso, the Tommy's head coach. Uh, and you can uh, get those interviews uh, elsewhere. I put the links in the page here that the podcast appears on. So if you want to know more about this game, uh, you can uh, follow there. And uh, and hear more of what they had to say after the game. I think one of the interesting things, too, about the MIAC is something that uh, Glenn Caruso says in the, uh, the interview is that basically everybody in the conference uh, you can make a case that they're better than last year, uh, except, you know, probably about St. John's. He didn't mention St. John's by name, but, you know, he said basically everybody but one, and it's pretty clear that that's the one team that's down. You can certainly make that case about Augsburg. You can certainly make that case about Concordia-Moorhead, and those are, uh, you know, two of the teams on the on the, uh, on the radar up ahead for St. Thomas, and then, you know, perhaps about St. Olaf at the end of the season as well. Uh, other games, you know, the the big top 25 clashes, you know, again, that kind of maybe fizzled out a little bit. How about the way that Mary Harden-Baylor kind of took control of the momentum at the, uh, at the end of the first half and then never let it go? I, I hear sometimes coaches talk about passing up a long field goal because you're afraid of the, of the field goal block, return for a touchdown, You know, completely switching the momentum. This was not a long kick, obviously, uh, but it was, uh, it was certainly something that changed the momentum anyway.
1: Sure, Pat, and, and it was made by a, a player that has been on the radar for, for Mary Harden Baylor, and, and really they were lucky to have him uh, back this season. Javis Jones um, returns a block field goal, 95 yards for a touchdown to end the first half uh, against Louisiana College, which you know needed this win because it already has the loss to Wesley and, and now, uh, you know, Louisiana College loses this game uh, and, and now they're behind the eight ball for the uh, for the automatic qualifier out of the American Southwest. So you have Jones returning the block field goal, 95 yards for a touchdown and the half. They go in and they come right out of the, the break with a, uh, a Darryl Bailey 64 yard touchdown pass to, to Jeff Miles. And then it's 13 three at that point. And, uh, and 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 you know, Louisiana College really never even threatened after that point. It, it was amazing that it's a, a, a tight game the whole, whole entire first half, I mean, neck and neck. These two teams playing each other tough. And so, and then you look at the final score, Pat, and it was 30 to 3, Mary Harden-Baylor. And that's just the type of team they've been, you know, this season. They've, they've been dominant. And it was interesting to note that uh LC didn't get dominated the whole game but once uh once those two big plays happened to end the half and to start the the third quarter uh you know they they, they just could never get anything going
0: I think the other uh, important thing for Mary Harden baylor this week was the return of Darius Wilson
1: Yeah you're right they they're, you know maybe their other best player you know along with Jones and along with uh LaDaryl Bailey you know he he had a great game early in the season against Kane and uh and had been hurt and in, in you know you almost forget about it because Mary Harden-Baylor's been so dominant even with him out, but, you know, get him back in time for this game was was a big deal for them.
0: Uh, Another game between top 25 teams was the game between the 25s uh, as Heidelberg defeated Otterbein. I know you've been – that that you were ahead of the curve, ahead of the top 25 curve on Heidelberg and had been voting them pretty highly for several weeks and to the point where, um, you know, Heidelberg – Got into the poll this week, and I think it's just a lot of people waiting to see, you know, what it would be like when they actually uh, when they actually played, you know, one of the better teams in the conference, and got a pretty resounding answer.
1: Yeah, they sure did. I mean, Pat, there's a there's a lot of teams right now in or around the top 25 that haven't had that signature victory. You know, Mount Union is in that group, but but they're. Well, I, would they got say, the
0: I would say Franklin probably qualifies for them.
1: Uh, Franklin is in that group I would say uh, Illinois Wesleyan maybe maybe Coe because the the, you know that conference is, is down this season um, there, there's certainly a handful of teams that have good records. Waynesburg, um, you know, have good records, but don't have a, a, a signature victory. And so voters tend to, you know, with Mount Union, you can lean on the history. You can lean on how dominant they've been. You know, they, nobody's scored on them since week one. You can chalk that up as a pretty good team. But for some of these other teams that don't have the the history, you know, like Heidelberg, I think it takes time for voters. They, they want to see. A a win and a convincing win over another good team and and Otterbein I think was a little bit of, of a surprise with their five and zero start you know they they uh they have a, the great wide receiver and Trey Fairchild but we weren't expecting them to, to come out of the gate undefeated and and um, that five and five and zero start made this game a big showdown and Heidelberg was convincing in the victory got 109 yards rushing from Cartel Brooks um, but but I thought the more Impressive thing was the defense holding, uh, was shutting uh, Otterbine out.
0: You um, talked about Waynesburg. Uh, you mentioned uh, your know, Waynesburg is undefeated. They haven't uh, because I think partially because Thomas Moore is down this year. You know they ha- they don't have that signature win. They they beat Thomas Moore, but Thomas Moore is three and three, so uh, beating Thomas Moore is not necessarily the uh, the unique thing it used to be. And they had to come from behind to beat Bethany on Saturday. They were down twenty one seven. Midway through the third quarter, and had to come back with a uh, field goal in the final 30 seconds of the game to win that game 23-21 against Bethany, who's who's had a decent year last year, but is one and five right now.
1: And that's the sort of thing, Pat, where you say, you know, great teams if they do that once, you, you give them credit. You say well, they did a, you know, they hung in there and they won the game the way they had to. It's okay to win ugly every once in a while, but if teams start doing that uh, frequently you know, we kind of take it as a sign of, you know, bad things are eventually going to happen, kind of what we were talking about with St. John Fisher. Um, So, you know, I give Waynesburg a pass for being able to pull this one out against Bethany, but... In a day full of crazy upsets, and at one point on Saturday, Pat, you know, teams were falling left and right. You know, last t- I was seeing the Bethany score, and I was like, you know, Waynesburg is going to bite the dust too. And uh, you know, they ended up pulling it out, which which was uh, good for them. But there there were a few teams, and, and it happened pretty in a pretty short span on Saturday afternoon that uh, that bit the dust.
0: Yeah, and there were of course seven top twenty five teams that lost on Saturday, but four of them lost to other ranked teams. Um, so talking about that. We haven't talked about the Oshkosh Platteville game, and I think we will talk about that a little later because, uh, I think we're going to talk about Oshkosh a little more as, uh, they pertain to next week. But, um, you know, some of the other, some of the other games that went or uh, the other ranked teams that went down, uh, Birmingham Southern, uh, falls to Trinity of Texas, uh, Elmhurst defeats Wheaton. Um, you know, and we, and we talked about St. John Fisher already. Um, Keith, I know you had uh, your eye on the Trinity uh, Birmingham Southern game earlier in the week. What was it that? Uh, what was your leading indicator there? I guess.
1: Well, a couple of things. One is Trinity; their their loss to Mary harden Baylor, you know, kind of doesn't compare. You you play a team that good, and, and it's um, it, it, I don't want to say you throw the result out, but
0: but we it, can throw the result out basically, right?
1: Sure. Right. Because I mean, it, you know. It, they, right now they 're better than anybody in Division Three, except for Mountain Union, so you, Trinity having a bad loss to Mary Harden Baylor and giving up a lot of points to Sol Ross State. those things um, weren 't quite as surprising. you know Birmingham Southern's never beaten Trinity uh, there's been many years when, when Trinity's been the dominant program in, in that part of the South, and um, this you know I guess maybe just in terms of you know, psychologically, even though Southerns coming in as as the higher ranked team they they were the team that had to, has to figure out how to beat trinity and and Trinity wasn't as bad really as as the record sort of indicated because they were coming in at three and two, but the loss was to mary harden baylor and the the loss that at the time uh against Solros was was a major surprise we've now seen Sol Ross State has this you know ridiculous offense and and they're going to give a lot of teams a lot of trouble and and so um well that was sort of the 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 key i was i was um Stretching it a little bit, I kind of thought Birmingham Southern would bounce back from losing to Wesley because they were pretty good at, uh, up at Wesley, and uh, I thought they would they would you know play a little bit better game than they did. But uh, Trinity put a, a pretty solid uh, victory together, and uh, now they're they're sort of back in the, in the hunt. Although uh, you know the two losses, all these Pool B teams are are maybe in trouble.
0: Yeah, I think it's a it's a difficult road for them, but you know it's hard to eliminate anybody with two losses right now it's certainly a possibility that uh, other things might happen uh and then um Elmhurst finally got the win that you've been looking for since about July
1: well yeah Well, what's weird is is you know i kind of after they got blown out by North Central i met, i just chalked it up i was i was too eager to uh to to see them finally break through and i i just was i was wrong and you know i i i didn't touch them in in the triple take picks at all and uh, they, they really bounced back pretty well. They, they beat Wheaton, and uh, they did it the way I think we were kind of expecting Elmhurst to be pretty good this season um, was, you know, by being able to run the ball. And uh, 233 yards rushing on Wheaton. You know, Wheaton had 263 yards rushing in the game and ended up being a, a pretty good game uh, for a while Um you know at one point late in the fourth quarter is a 24 or in the third quarter is a 24-21 game and Elmhurst actually got a big interception return after they would taken the lead um, to to put a little breathing room in that game uh, and make it 35-24 Wheaton still scored uh, early in the fourth quarter and then that fourth quarter you know it was, it was back and forth uh, the whole game and Wheaton was able to and Elmhurst excuse me Elmhurst was able to hang on and uh, you know for them really all all we know about Elmhurst at this point is is Scotty Williams and some of the things they've done on offense and to hold to to keep Wheaton off the scoreboard for the last fourteen and a half minutes of that game you know said something about the defense they have there too
0: yeah um it's one of those that you know the the cliche would be bend not break because they sure gave up a whole ton of yards, including uh a last drive in which Wheaton got down into Elmhurst territory, although the uh, ending is kind of a bit deceiving because it was a, uh, there was a, they, they got the ball into the red zone, but on the last play of the game, and there was an offensive pass interference, which was declined. But regardless, the point being is that, you know, Wheaton was able to move the ball, but Elmer's was able to keep them out of the end zone, especially uh, for pretty much all of that fourth quarter when they really needed to.
1: Yeah, there was a, the, a big drive. Wheaton was uh, moving the ball in the fourth quarter, and it got a fourth and one uh, on the three-yard line and, and lost four yards. And um, those kind of plays, even when you give up tons of yardage, and, and Pat, you mentioned that that uh, you know that Elmhurst certainly wasn't. This isn't one they'll chalk up uh, for for great defense in in terms you know statistically. But sometimes great defense is being opportunistic, making the big plays when when the time comes, and you know, Wheaton probably kicking itself for, for not winning this game. And, uh, you know, especially now that they, the, they fall behind a little bit in the CCIW race, but Elmhurst, you know, this is the breakthrough win that I think, um, we have been looking for out of them. And now it just makes this CCIW, which, um, tends to be fairly interesting quite often. I, I think right now it makes it a, a four-team race.
0: Uh, Illinois Wesleyan goes up to Wheaton in the, uh, in the week that comes up. You, know, you mentioned uh, about teams that you know, maybe haven't played uh, the best teams on their schedule, let's put it that way, and it, certainly Illinois Wesleyan would have to be one of them because you mentioned this is a four-team race. They haven't played any of the other three, and three of their final four games are against those three.
1: Yeah, and, and that's going to make this finish tough for them, you know, and, and it also kind of draws into question the, the start because um, you know, 6-0, and certainly impressive. But as a top 25 voters, our top 25 is actually pretty bullish on, on Illinois Wesleyan. Me personally, I, I still want to see that win against a Wheaton, a North Central, Elmhurst, somebody else who who, who really will give you a, a good test. And, you know, Illinois Wesleyan hasn't beaten a team right now with a winning record. Uh, they had the, the, the one point win that they survived against Milliken. You know, that I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but... The six and zero before I would push them into the top ten or fifteen, I did put them on my ballot this week. The Titans, but um, before I would push them really high up there, I'd like to see them uh, beat one of these other teams in the CCIW. And right now, you know, North Central looks like the the best team in, in terms of who they've the competition that they've played and, and to be five and one at this point. But there's no guarantee that that it's going to be North Central. I think Elmer's is is still in this thing, and uh, you know, Wheaton. Uh, you know, one game back right now. This is the type of conference where if you fall a game back because these teams have to play each other, uh, you know, there's four of them, just like we mentioned, there's, you know, four or five teams in the Mayak that's in that's in contention. I, I think this is one of the conferences that could have a different leader uh, every week as we finish this thing out.
0: And Illinois Wesleyan has, uh, we mentioned they all, they have the three teams to play. Uh, I'll have to play all three of them on the road. And they start this week with Wheaton and Illinois Wesleyan hasn't won at Wheaton since 1996. So it's been a long time since uh, the Titans have gone up to Wheaton and and come away with a win. Um, You know, I wanted to switch gears a little bit. Um, We've talked about some of the great games, some of the close games, some of the upsets. And I wanted to talk a little bit about a blowout. The, uh, the Mountain Union game against Capital, which uh, Mountain Union won 62 to nothing. And I know you haven't, you know, like sat down and broken down all the video on this, obviously. But I know you've got a chance to watch a little bit of that game already before, uh, before we do this recording session. So I wanted to get your take on the Purple Raiders.
1: Yeah, well, you know, Pat, we always mention that we love the fact that uh, some of those Ohio games are on DirecTV and occasionally games from Wisconsin or Pennsylvania end up on, on the DirecTV package, which we both subscribe to in the fall. And so I got to watch a little bit of, of Mountain Union Capital. And, uh, you know, it, it basically we haven't hadn't been to a Mountain Union game this year because they haven't played any of their great opponent, opponents yet. And because, you know, we're so used to them we'll see them at some point in late November or December that sometimes the the regular season games don't get the attention that they would deserve if there was a similar game from a team that didn't have the history that Mountain Union has. So uh be it's great to be able to watch them a little bit on TV and uh try to pick out the differences between the two quarterbacks, I think was one thing, and to try to figure out is this defense that, that right now has given up one touchdown on the season, is it – up there with the elite mountain union defenses or is it just um doing you know kind of a typical mountain union defense they've had great defenses before they've had great teams before There's certainly been more experience at the skill positions with different mountain union teams you know you go back to the 08 07 06 teams or the 02 teams who had you know running backs who'd been stars for two and three years um you know four four years and you know um, quarterbacks that had been in the program for years. And, and this isn't that Mountain Union team. This is a Mount Union team that's still going back and forth between Kevin Burke and, and Roman Namdar at the, at the quarterback position, um, still having you a know, running back emerge, uh, TJ Lattimore, had a pretty good game uh, on Saturday. And so, you know, to to get a, to be able to see that a little bit w- was good. And the, the big observation I came away with um, for the short part of the game that I did get to watch, and, and Capital wasn't very competitive, and so it makes it kind of hard to evaluate. But uh, Kevin Burke throws a nice ball, but he's also very mobile. And he, he got out and uh, he ran a touchdown in. At one point in that game on Saturday, and so you see why they like him. We, you know, you and I saw uh, saw Namdar. He had that just that took that one snap in the stag bowl and showed his speed, and um, you know he's a he's a weapon as well. But I think Mount Union. It's going to sound weird to say this, but I think they're kind of rounding into form offensively. The defense is, is. Total, you know, midseason form. Man. They're they're uh, they're they're good good rush off the edge. They're great against the run. They make you know I, I thought they made capital um, look slow and, and ineffective. And uh, you know there was a big uh, play very early in the game. Isaiah Scott, uh, you know, just jumped a jumped a route, stepped in front of the pass, and and took it all the way back. Broke a couple tackles on the run back, and. Uh, you Know it, it just looked like it was happening in slow motion, just three step drop, supposed to be a quick hitch. And, and Scott was just, you know, he'd obviously either seen it on film or he just was, it was just he recognized it and he was, he was way ahead of it. And uh, you know, Mountain Union right now, that's kind of how they are, they're way ahead of the teams they've played so far in the OAC, and uh, they're another one just like the Illinois Wesleyan. That all their good opponents are, are coming up here in the last four games, all
0: their good conferences. Uh, oh, I keep wanting to remember, remember that uh, you know have Franklin is at least a top twenty-five team. Um, they have played Franklin. I wanted to. Ask you, I wanted to ask um, you. You know, this is I think a question that question we've uh, talked but about, about before with previous quarterbacks. Who is the guy that Kevin Burke is most like? The previous Mount Union quarterback. And from your brief description, I might throw out Greg McKayle as an opening starter, and then you can tell me if you know from having actually seen him play. Yeah, that's the guy. I
1: mean, the the. The body type is not necessarily similar, and um, but being able to throw, you know, to to, I mean, when he gets protection, he can sit back there and wing it. You know, he's got good receivers to throw to. Jasper Collins, you know, wide open, made it, made one touchdown look easy. Um, And then being able to to move a little bit and you know get around the corner and and stick the ball over the pylon for a touchdown. Um, You know, that's the comparison that comes to mind. I don't know if that's necessarily accurate. Not not having watched uh, a lot. Kevin Burke, but if he can be a guy who's a dual threat, um, you know, that's just good for Mount Union. I don't know if, if Mount Union, kind of, kind of, you said something similar to this earlier in the podcast about the teams, Pat, who, who uh, run, you know, they don't throw because they don't have to. Mount Union doesn't have to pick a quarterback right now. They can play the probably maybe the rest of this regular season going back and forth between Burke and Namdar and either using their two sets of skills or uh, figuring out which one is going to be the one who's dependable when the, when the games get tough and for Mountain Union they won't get tough until maybe the second round of the playoffs maybe further than that um you know assuming they they win the oac like they've done for the past 20 seasons certainly um Heidelberg is going to be a challenge Baldwin Wallace uh, could be a challenge otterbein could be a challenge for them. And John Carroll uh, they also still have to play in John Carroll's four and two but you know, the way typical Mountain Union season goes. You know if they finish ten and zero and they get an easy first round home game or easy for them, you know they they're not really going to have to be settled on their guy until you know about Thanksgiving.
0: Yeah, and I and I wonder if they're really not settled. Yeah, and, on the and guy. I and I wonder if the they're really I not mean, settled on the guy. I, I get the impression. I mean, Burke has um, been the starter. You know, he started throughout. Mountain Union um, has gotten caught um, at but, the you know, end of the season, of the, the, back season back the last season, couple uh, years with you know not step having step a backup quarterback, quarterback, quarterback who can who can step up and perform on a big stage. And I would just I would assume that Larry Karras is doing the same thing that he would like to have been doing the last couple years is having that backup ready, having him have a lot of reps in games because you can already have a lot of reps in games. Or as, or a, a Mount as a Mountain Union quarterback or as a Mountain Union stringer second stringer and third stringer at just reps, about any you know, position. Still, but to have those reps, uh, you know, when it's still... I want to say the game's still close, because uh, that's not right. I want to say the game's still close, because that's not right. But when it's still acceptable back, to throw still the still ball, use to, use to put it that way, you know, still acceptable to use the vast majority of your playbook, I think those are more valuable reps than, you know, handing off... Yeah, you're right. You don't.
1: I mean, you don't get any real work like that as a quarterback except for just being in a game situation. And so... You know, you—it's hard to fault Mountain Union for being that much better than some of the early opponents that they play, um, but having not come back to bite them. Pat in in you know previous seasons. Remember in the in the Stag Bowl, late in the fourth quarter, they were, they were trying to rally against Whitewater, and they moved uh, Cecil Shorts from wide receiver to quarterback, and he had come to Mountain Union as a quarterback, and he'd always taken snaps there, and he's a playmaker, and you know. He can throw the ball. It wasn't like a, uh, it, it was a complete stretch, but it, it was troublesome for Mount Union because if he was their best quarterback, it also took away their best threat at wide receiver. And so they, they ideally, um, didn't want to do that, and they don't want to get stuck in that situation again. You, you know, we've seen quarterbacks get hurt. Second string quarterbacks have to start in the playoffs for Mount Union, for Whitewater, for for several different teams across the country, and uh, you, you got to have that backup ready. Pat, you know, the other thing that, that stands out from watching uh, a little bit of that game is, is that, you know, it's such a shame what's happened to the Capitol program, you know, because they they weren't very good against Mount Union. And uh, it's weird. They come out for warm-ups. The guys look to be about the same size. You don't see the Mount Union. You know, if you, if you look at the two football teams, they kind of look similar, uh, but they, they just don't play at the same speed. And, and it's such a shame because Capitol was, You know, six years ago, maybe seven years ago, five years ago, uh, getting ready. It was a program on the brink, a a team that was um, getting ready to be a perennial top 25, top 10 team. I finished as high as number three in the rankings one year. Uh, You know, under Jim Collins, I thought they were they were really going places. And um, it's a uh, it would have been nice for for Division three as a whole, too, to see a team. In the conference, consistently challenged Mount Union, and, and uh, Capital did it for a couple of years. They, they weren't able to get over the hump, but um, but it, it looked like it had the makings of a big rivalry. And, and it just on Saturday, it was nothing of the sort. You know, it was over by halftime, and uh, you know, it's just kind of a shame, I guess.
0: Yeah, you know, the thing I've I've heard about Capital over the last uh, might be four years, three or four years now, is that it, it just seems like. You know, there's been a a change at the top or somewhere higher up in the administration where athletics is not getting the – I don't know if they're not getting the resources or not getting the respect or the school is just not as interested in athletics as it used to be. But I don't think it's just football that's struggling. I think you could probably point to some other sports that are struggling as well. But I think the other thing to consider too is that, um, you know – Capital wasn't very good before Jim Collins got there either. You know, they, they really struggled, uh, before him and in the end, you know, maybe it's not too surprising that they, sh- that they struggled after him. Uh, he got obviously some, some great kids in there, some great, uh, you know, uh, some great division three football players, um, you know, but he moved on to division two and, and since then, you know, the program just hasn't been the same and whether he saw, the writing on the wall about the administration and got out or whether, you know, those two things are independent of each other. Um, you know, the fact remains is that uh, capital is really not competitive in football right now.
1: Yeah, Pat. And we've seen in a couple of different places where, um, you know, the coach leaves and the program changes and it, it sometimes it's about the coach, you know. It really is like as much as you, it's about the administration and the school, the players that they can recruit, you know, and all that. Sometimes it really is about the coach. You know, Rowan is a good example of a program that it's still a good program, but it, but Casey Keeler had it as championship level program, you know, Stagwell program, um, and and now it's just one of the better programs in the NJAC. You know, occasionally you can make the playoffs, go nine and one or something like that, but it's it's not the same. Without Casey Keeler, and, and he's gone on to Delaware and turned Delaware into a, you know a championship program at that level. So uh, sometimes it is about the coach. Sometimes you know Delaware Valley, G. A. Mangus, remember he kind of revived that program from the dead, and and was a very engaging personality, and, and you know kind of a, a coach as star. Type of guy in Division Three, but that program has been able to sustain it a lot better than, than some programs uh, are able to when their coach leaves. So maybe that's part of what's happened at Catholic too is that um, as much as it's about having good players, and they certainly had, you know, we're fortunate to get Rocky Pantella, uh, who was a transfer from Toledo, I believe, and they get the Hausler Twins at the time. You know, sometimes um, it's, it's a perfect storm, uh, uh, and, and the coach is the guy that stirs it all up. And once that guy's gone, it um you know it's hard to sustain
0: keith i think that last time you actually said catholic instead of capital but actually i think that works too
1: ah yes <laughs> capitals has uh ha- catholic has has uh had its share of coming and going as uh, as coaches too so
0: so uh, uh, we won't go- we won't go off on that tangent right now. <laughs> no, not forty-five minutes into the podcast. We uh, we have actually, you know, other top twenty-five games that we haven't even talked about. For example, uh, you know, always uh, and every week, there's this whole slate of blowouts, and if we don't talk about your team, it's because you won sixty-nine nothing, or fifty-eight seventeen, or forty-five to ten. But you get the picture. Maybe those numbers sound familiar to some of you people. Fifty-four to fourteen. Congratulations to Linfield, though they. Uh, clinched their 57th consecutive winning season, continuing to extend their record. Um, the other game between top 25 teams, and kind of segueing a little bit into next week, although we still have more of week seven to talk about, the Oshkosh Platteville game, in which um, you know it, again is it a game that was you know close for a little while. It was a, a one-touchdown game, but only for the first. 22 minutes or so of the game, and then uh, Oshkosh kind of took it from there.
1: And this is week one of the, the Oshkosh coming out party. If, in all seriousness, if, if they are uh, a top 10 program and, and as, as good as they right now believe they are, you beat. You had, they had to beat Platteville, and they have to go next week uh, and, and beat uh, Wisconsin Whitewater. They got the great quarterback. We all know that, but the the defense was also impressive on Saturday, holding Platteville, you know, Platteville down to its the third quarterback or you know having having injury issues, but really wasn't having any trouble still moving the ball. Um, and Oshkosh played a big game defensively.
0: Yeah, uh, you know the, the the week I saw Platteville, of course Platteville struggled to run the ball at all, uh, but you know they're not the first team to struggle to run the ball on Wisconsin Whitewater. Uh, Hank McIver had uh, 17 carries for 92 yards. That's pretty decent for him but you know now you know Platteville's in a situation where you know they're still ranked but um, you know they've lost two games and it, it's really as we mentioned it's it's kind of hard to get in the playoffs at that rate um, and I would think more so for Platteville if, if they uh if they finish out with two losses and and Oshkosh and whitewater don't lose to anybody other than each other um, you know Platteville would be sitting back there as a, a Potential third team from the WIAC, and that's something that doesn't happen very often either. Even less often than getting a two-loss at-large team.
1: Sure, it was just a one-year '08, oh, I believe it was, where Empire Eight got three teams in the playoffs. Uh, we, I don't think we've it's uh, it's ever been done um, before then or after that. But so much of the the at-large bids, too, when you're the two-loss team, is dependent on what happens to all the other at large teams and we've had years when so many teams lose in week 11 that you you bring a team um that had, that had no chance you know going in or you figure they're they're like the 10th team down the list on the Saturday the final Saturday of the season and then the nine teams in front of them all lose and then all of a sudden they move up and, and they're the last team in the playoffs it can happen you know, Platteville clearly has to continue to win the rest of its games. And, and, you know, one of the big reasons they weren't able to win uh, against Oshkosh was, was uh, having a couple turnovers, a couple interceptions from, uh, from Bryce Corrigan. Whereas Nate, where he uh, play, played a pretty clean game, you know, the, the numbers weren't overwhelming, but when you're 15 of 21, three touchdown passes, no interceptions, the, uh, that's about as, as as clean a game as a quarterback can play, and sometimes that's all all uh, really requires a quarterback to make good decisions, make quick decisions, and not be careless with the football.
0: Yeah, I tell you, um, I've already seen Whitewater play three times this this season. I'm really giving serious consideration to driving down to Whitewater on Saturday because now we're talking about number five versus number ten, and if it's uh, if it's Whitewater, if Whitewater loses, that's a Whitewater elimination game. I would have to think because that would be well, maybe it's not. I, I guess I shouldn't quite say that, but it would be two overall losses, and if one of them's out of region, maybe that's not as big a deal, but maybe it is. Yeah. Anyway, my point being is that that's yet another great game that's within reasonable driving distance of me. Although six hours is kind of far to go for me.
1: Well, you've been awful fortunate this year to to be at some of the great games, whether they're you know great individual performances or. Just to be close to Minnesota and Wisconsin, where we're having some great conference races this year, and been uh, been plenty of years recently when when the WIAC wasn't all that interesting. And this year, you have three programs. You have maybe, possibly coming up this week a changing of the guard if Oshkosh is able to pull this off. If not, you have Whitewater, you know, reaffirming its uh, its dominance and saying, look that that loss back on September eighth. Was basically a fluke, and uh, you know, it was just us. We got a lot of new players working in the position here, but they're they're gearing up for what maybe another run through the postseason. And so, it uh, I think there's a there's a huge um, incentive to to check that game out next weekend. And uh, the great the great thing about uh, the YAC and uh, we've seen this really a lot this season. Um, being able to check out these big games, some of them on video. So if you if you can't drive the six hours up and six back, is that what you're, what you're saying? Six yeah, up and back.
0: Unfortunately, yes. Really, that's
1: that's a twelve hour, fifteen hour commitment. Three hours at the game, plus you're at the game. You know, um, <laughs> I'm not
0: at the game just three hours. You know that.
1: You <laughs> you you you're staying for interviews afterward, and then you're updating the site. You know, that's a serious commitment some of these uh we've been really fortunate this season i think and uh I, I salute the the d3 schools who are getting on board with uh with uStream or whatever video service that they use because uh it's been been great to be able to jump from game to game on saturday and uh and you know you we always we always complain about this we can't be you know, if there's 239 teams, uh, I means at least there's 120 game sites on a Saturday. We can't be all those places at once. But, it, you know, if we can check out a handful of the the, the big teams in Division three uh, by video, uh, that's great. And then if there's a game that uh, that we weren't really didn't, you know, maybe was just kind of on the radar a little bit and then it starts getting wonderful. You can you can kind of dip in on it and check out the uh, the the crazy occurrences.
0: Yeah, you know it used to be, uh, and, and Whitewater has a a great video production, uh, so it probably makes sense for me to stay home and watch that. Uh, you know, it used to be that we would have to go, and if we wanted a big game to be broadcast on the internet, uh, even just audio, we had to go and do it ourselves. Uh, and we used to do, uh, you know, this is more than a decade ago now, but we used to have a D3Football.com game of the week, and one of our promos for that, uh, for that package. Uh, talked about Texas-style shootouts, and we certainly had one of those on Saturday, um, which, you know, set uh, you know, nearly set some Division Three records. Uh, it was three points short of the highest combined uh, point total, and we're talking about, of course, you mentioned Sul Ross State earlier. Uh, Sul Ross State defeated Texas Lutheran by the score of 70-65, to 65, which, as uh, our... Uh, Good friend uh, at Smed Indy on Twitter pointed out was a higher combined score than either of those two schools' men's basketball games last year.
1: Yeah, and, and Pat, this game started out, um, it was one that I mentioned in Triple Take as possibly being a epic shootout, but in the beginning of the game, only one team had the Bullets. And uh, it, it was Dominique Carson having the game of his life for Sol Ross State. And in the first 30 seconds, he has a 70-yard touchdown run. He has three touchdowns by the uh, end of the first quarter. He's uh, six by halftime. He, he's ca- he caught an 83-yard touchdown pass, so he had a 70-yard run. He had a 53-yard run. Just, it's literally the game of this guy's life. Um, and then Texas Lutheran. Isn't doing a whole lot either, but they they had a uh, they they started getting it together in the second quarter. They end up having a guy in Cameron Peavy who uh, who caught four touchdown passes in this game, and uh, you know he was by far not the the biggest indiv- individual star in this game. So Ross has had a great offense all season, and they they jumped out to a twenty eight nothing lead. They extended it to forty two seventeen at one point 63 uh, at the end of the third quarter. Uh, it's actually, it's actually 63-24 at one point, all right, um, with uh, four and a half minutes to go in the third quarter of this game. And then Texas Lutheran gets rolling. And uh, they they, uh, they had a couple quarterbacks playing this game. Brent P V was playing for a while, and then Trenton White came into the game, and uh, he, he started. He was responsible for a lot of the comeback. Um, Texas Lutheran, this is ridiculous. They scored 35 points in the fourth quarter. And did not win the game. It went from sixty-three thirty, started getting interesting. At the time I picked it up, I believe it was sixty-three forty-four, maybe sixty-three fifty-one. I started tuning in. Uh, Texas Lutheran down the field, get the ball back down the field. They cut it to sixty-three fifty-eight. It's a five-point game, and and so they've at this point have scored um, four unanswered an touchdowns to make what was a blowout to, into a five-point game. And as soon as, literally as soon as they get it to a five-point game, Dominique Carson for his uh, eighth touchdown of the day, a 63-yard touchdown run, basically, you know, untouched to, to extend it back to a 12-point lead for Sol Ross State. But Texas Lutheran still wasn't done. Three, three minutes, 41 seconds left. They end up driving down. Um, you know, they had their last chance. They punted away, but they got the ball back, was able to, uh, to score with uh, 12 seconds left to cut it back to a five-point game, 70-65 at this point. Uh, didn't get the onside kick. Great onside kick from that, that All-American kicker at Texas Lutheran, Alan Kane, high bounce, bounces over the Sol Ross guys and the, the Texas Lutheran guys just couldn't get their hands on it. But the Sol Ross guys were offside. So this is like the game that will never end. And um, they got another shot at the onside kick. They did not get it. Sol Ross kneels it out. They scored 70 points, and yet they, they had a guy that had eight touchdowns, and they were sweating at the end of this game because their defense couldn't stop anybody either.
0: Dominique Carson 22 carries for 319 yards and 6 touchdowns, 14.5 yards a carry. Um, you know, the the guys who uh who came into this program this year, uh as as transfers have really had a a huge huge impact for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh you know, AJ Springer the quarterback was, you know, through a bunch of touchdown passes. Uh Dominique Carson as you mentioned ran for six of them. Uh, on on Saturday, but it, you know, late in the game. Uh, well, definitely at different points during the game, you know, Sol Ross had to pass, and uh, you know, a, a lot of the damage was done on the ground. But Carson, he had uh, ninety nine yards receiving and two receiving touchdowns as well. So, um, Sol Ross, I will tell you what, this does for them, it, it makes them a program that we talk about, and it, it hasn't been the yeah, case ever for long because it's right because it's that that just that. Weird outposts, you know. Even in Texas, and Texas is obviously a giant state. It's a long road trip for you know. It's an in-state road trip for a lot of schools, and it's still a long road trip, uh, you know. You know, especially East Texas Baptist or someone like that it has to go all the way across the state of Texas to to get to Alpine. Um, now that we're, now we're talking about them, and it reminded me of it reminded me of the inverse of something that that Trines Matt Land told me one time when I for from around the nation. He said when he first got to try and trying to build the program up, he put all his athletes on defense. And the purpose of doing that was to keep the scores close so that when they go out recruiting the next year, they say, look, we got a great defense. We just need to recruit some offensive guys. And, and, and they say, look, uh, you know, we're only losing 20 to 7. We're close. We're, we're right on the brink. You know, we just... We just need a couple couple more good recruiting classes and and, end up working out for them trying, you know, who became a top 25 program, uh, dominated this conference for a little while. Uh, For in this case, and maybe in Texas Lutheran's case, it seems like all the athletes on the team must be on offense. Because there, I, I don't understand how you can score 70 points and give up 65 points, you know, or, or vice versa. You you got the talent to score 65. You got different quarterbacks throwing, you know, multiple touchdowns. Trenton White didn't come into this game until the fourth quarter, and he had four touchdown passes, five passes um, for, for Texas Lutheran. So they have all this talent uh, there. You know, why can't they find some guys to, to cover?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um... I think that uh, Stevenson is another uh, instance of a of a young program, which put a lot of its athletes on offense, and they were able to compete and be exciting in terms of shootouts. It's it's your choice, you know. You uh, like you laid it out. You either you you put guys on defense and you keep games uh, low scoring and short, or uh, short low scoring and close, or you put them on offense and make them exciting and try to sell your program that way.
1: Yeah, and you know, again, it, it. Put your program on the radar. We're talking about Sol Ross State and Texas Lutheran right now, kind of middle of the pack teams in the American Southwest, which we otherwise wouldn't be talking about, except that they nearly broke the record that Brockport State and who am I? Hartwick set in an ECAC game um, a few years back, 70-68 is the record for points in a
0: game. We're coming up on the one-hour mark in the podcast, and we try not to keep you too much longer than an hour on uh, your Monday morning. If you're doing whatever you're doing on a Monday morning, I, I won't belabor the point and make this longer. Um, and we uh, go go into our uh, our non-lightning lightning round because our lightning round is never all that fast. But uh, uh, shout out to uh, Washington and Jefferson for uh, defeating uh, Westminster on Saturday by the score twenty-four twenty-one.
1: Yeah, and and you know, that was obviously an emotional game for them. Um, given what happened a, a couple weeks ago they kind of had a, kind of a weird um, you know statistical game for them out gained Westminster 436 to, to 327 but they were they weren't very good on on uh third down to a 14 and so they um kind of had to, you know they they, they kind of had to, to work to pull out the win but I I think those ones that's one that they'll remember it was the first home game uh, since uh tim mcNerney was was killed and um I know it meant a lot to those, those guys up there. We saw them you know, still tweeting on, on Twitter um, as opposed to tweeting somewhere else. Um, we, we saw them you know that, that this, uh, this result really did mean a lot.
0: I have tried to tweet on Pinterest, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. Uh, Concordia Chicago uh, has first place in the Northern Athletics Conference all to itself, now with a 47-44 overtime win at Concordia, Wisconsin.
1: Yeah, and, and how often do you have a game where they, they are one yard short of 1,200 total yards with the two teams in that game, and that's not the biggest yardage total of the day? That that honor went to the, the Sol Ross-Texas Lutheran game.
0: And by the way, the Sol Ross-Texas Lutheran game, as as yardage-laden as that was, was not the record. Um, you may remember the record from uh, one of the other games I was at some years ago now at uh, now I've forgotten which two teams, Crown and Knox, I believe, out of the uh, UMAC Dome Day back in 2009. Uh, hold that, uh, hold that, uh, uh, that mark. Um, River Falls beating Stevens Point, 26-15. Maybe not a game we'd necessarily talk a whole lot about, but it's a uh, uh, wins in the conference for River Falls have been pretty few and far between.
1: Yeah, and as much as we talk about what's going on at the top of every conference, and the YX having a nice. Um, you know, the you you sometimes see new teams changing uh, at the top of conferences. That usually means somebody that's that's pretty good it ends up at the bottom of the conference. And uh, right now, that's Stevens point. You know, for for I went back through the WIAC history this week to look at uh, if if Oshkosh and Platville had ever had seasons this good before at the same time, and really it never happened. They they so often. Been two of the teams at the bottom, along with River Falls, and so it's a big deal for for River Falls to get a conference win over Stevens Point.
0: And how about the Co debut game? That is a a game in which Co won in double overtime.
1: And that is the one where I just discovered the highlight package about an hour before we did the podcast, and I emailed it to myself, hoping I could watch it before we went on. But uh, what I read about the game was that that it was a great finish, and I, you know, we saw the the tweets and you know how. Uh, you know you, you, you when you whenever a game wins in overtime, obviously' it's, it's, uh, it's such a, a do or die type of thing where you know it, 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 you know the touchdown the game's over. Um, the uh, you know the, the as, as great as uh, great a season as Co is having right now at six and0, they, they still don't have a, a, a signature win because nobody else in, in, in their conference is having a great year so far. Uh, Dubuque, you know for a playoff team. I thought they would fall back a little bit. You know, I think I wrote that in the in the kickoff beyond the top twenty-five, but, but they're a down they're up to four losses now, and that's pretty surprising.
0: Coming up next week as we uh look forward to week eight here in uh the division three football season here in two thousand twelve, uh Mary Harden Baylor uh faces Harden Simmons. Yeah, you know, Harden Simmons is having an interesting year. Uh the only two losses are to uh, a couple of pretty good teams for what that if that means something.
1: Yeah, I, there really are a bunch of teams like that, Pat. And I just just noticed uh, Harden Simmons um, when I went through the poll stuff this week. I said, you know, there there they are, right? They're four and two again. There are a bunch of teams that have two losses to uh, to you know rank teams. Uh, Platteville, you mentioned earlier. Uh, Pacific Lutheran's on that list. You know, they they lost to Cal Lutheran in Linfield. Uh, Birmingham Southern. And, uh, and, and Louisiana College, we mentioned earlier in the in the podcast. But, yeah, Mary Harden-Baylor, Harden-Simmons, always, always uh, uh, a great rivalry game.
0: And Harden-Simmons has control of its own destiny in the American Southwest Conference. They are unbeaten at 3-0 and along with Mary Harden-Baylor. Uh, we mentioned, of course, uh, number five Whitewater is hosting 10th-ranked Wisconsin Oshkosh. Uh, sixth-ranked Wesley's barnstorming continues. They go all the way out to the Bay Area of... San Francisco, where they play Menlo. Uh mentioned Alfred and Salisbury. That's now a game between top 25 teams. Uh, St. John Fisher hosts Ithaca. Hobart goes to RPI. RPI pretty much ruined Hobart's chances at getting a good first-round playoff draw last year. Uh, Hobart ended up having to play Linfield, pretty much, I would think, primarily because RPI beat them last year.
1: Hobart-Wesley uh, game was a, probably one of those games where if you get you know, matched up against a centennial team or something like that, you have a much better chance of winning than you, than you do at Wesley in the first round. But you got to you got to take care of business during the season. And so far this year, Hobart's done that. You know, they really um, haven't played many close games, if any. I can't even think of one off the top. RPI, I think, is the more curious team in its matchup. That's a team that we haven't talked about much because their their results haven't been big game big games at the time they're played. But looking back beating Alfred 24-6 on week, in week one is a big deal for RPI. And then their loss to uh, Merchant Marine kind of in, in, in the end of September is a little curious now. But RPI is 5-1, and one, and uh, I, I've been maybe guilty of thinking Hobart's going to run away with this thing, but there's definitely no guarantee that's going to happen.
0: Uh, we mentioned Illinois Wesleyan goes to Wheaton, uh, where they haven't won since 1996. Uh, Lightcoming hosts Widener. Uh, we have Gettysburg and Johns Hopkins. Louisiana College makes the long trip to Sul Ross State. Uh, I think that's a, I, I don't know if they fly that route. I know Mississippi College flies when they go to Sul uh, Ross State, and Louisiana College is almost as far. Uh, how about Rowan, Cortland State? Cortland State finally getting back onto the radar of the top 25 voters a little bit this week, and this is a, obviously a huge game in terms of the NJAC playoff race. Is there three teams still undefeated in the conference?
1: Yeah, Kane is the is the third team in that group. And Pat it's this Cortland State is another team that had a bad loss early on, kinda pushed them to the side. And then I'm going going through the, the you know, the teams this week and oh yeah, Cortland State, there they are, you know, five and one. And uh, you know, the the, the loss to Buffalo State was certainly an eye opener. I've probably dropped the yardage total in every podcast this season. Uh the the seven hundred six yards that Buffalo State ran up on them in that 49-31 game in week 1, but Cortland State's been good since then and uh rowan been pretty good themselves. They were off this past week, but they're another they're a team now where you Rowan is undefeated against D3. You can almost ignore the Merrimack result for Rowan and uh, and and pitch this as a, a game, you know, maybe for the for the NJAC title, although Kane probably will have something to say about it.
0: And a bunch of other games going on uh, the rest of the week as well. But uh, we will uh, sign off and remind you that... uh, One other thing, of course, you mentioned highlights of uh, Dubuque and Co. And, of course, if you scroll down to the bottom of this page, if you're on the podcast page you'll see the uh, list of highlight packages and the D three reports from this past week, that highlight package is in there. And uh, also like you, I haven't had a chance to watch it either, but I will sometime on Monday. Hopefully you guys will as well. We have the highlights and D three reports Monday afternoon. Uh, we'll have the D three football.com play of the week on Tuesday. Um, I would still send your plays in because even though there's one play that was really super spectacular, um, you know, we still do feature, uh, everybody else who was nominated. Um, and a handful of finalists as well. So um, send those plays in by the end of the day on Monday. Uh, We've named the winner on Tuesday morning. We have Around the Region columns Tuesday evening and through the day on Wednesday and Keith's Around the Nation column on Thursday. And that's the Around the Nation podcast for the week of October 15th, 2012.